So good morning. <clears throat> you make me smile. <laughs> uh, today I'd like to speak about uh, the evolution of awareness. <clears throat> and I want to talk about it in a different kind of way because really all I've been talking about is the evolution of awareness. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I always want to stop from time to time. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> and uh, appreciate uh, how balanced uh, I feel Narayan's talks uh, hold my talks. Uh, and uh, because the next talk I give is going to be um, not so much the ascendance of into emptiness, which is really what I've been trying to encourage in the talk's theme, but really the descendence into back into form, into ourselves, into being the character and quality of person you are. And then I'm, the talk after that, I think, is going to really go in to the humanity of emotions and just look at it from the... So I, up, out to the universal... And you think, oh, why would I ever leave this? Because it's fractured. It's dualistic. It's fractured. And you can stay in emptiness and be obnoxious. <laughs> or you can come back in and deal with the ground of being, the essence of form. So anyway, that's a direction. I just wanted to give you some sense and so today, I want to talk about the evolution of awareness, but I want to talk about it from um, a grouping that we have established from day one in our, uh, on our uh, meditation practice. Teacher gives us uh, usually instructions that have to do with uh, focusing putting your attention on your breath. <clears throat> so, I want to look at that triangulation of me focusing awareness and object, breath. Me, awareness, and object. Now, within that grouping is the entire Dharma. Entire Dharma. Over time, the evolution is a different weight on each of those different uh, points. Me, awareness, the object. In the beginning, almost all, if not all of our weight, is on me. Because that's the reality we hold. Of course it should be on me. And Awareness, as I've mentioned before, is pretty much missed. And the object we have, our breath or whatever, wherever we focus, can be a candle flame for that matter. But the object is secondary to what I want to achieve for myself. So this is a self-wanting mindfulness. A self, um, the mindfulness is around one's own self-benefit. <clears throat> uh, 
Now, very early on, we realize that our lives have not been attentive because we can't even pay attention to the object that, the only object we're asked to see, our breath or whatever it is. And it just dawns on us, or at least it dawned on me, how inattentive I've been in my whole life. I mean, I haven't heard anybody. I've heard myself. And it's just, I, if, <laughs> I can't place my attention on this damn breath for more than two or three, and I'm off if for it seems like hours. I remember uh, I was doing, uh, way back in the beginning days of IMS, uh, Robert Hover was a teacher here, and, and I was struggling. Oh, God, I was struggling. And he's really a demanding teacher. And he, he came around to each one of us, and he said, um, what percentage of your attention is on your breath? And I said, well, I got to make something up because I can't. <laughs> 50, 50 percent. <laughs> That's good, he said. <laughs> it was a struggle. I, I, it was, a, it was the, the hardest thing mentally I think I've ever tried to do. And it didn't just stop with one retreat. It went on and on, well into years of practice. Or it's like a buck and bronco, you know. <clears throat> just to be able to learn to pay attention is such a it has so much healing policy to it. But it also <clears throat> it opens your life. The attention, which is awareness, <clears throat> that you reinforce has applications everywhere in interactions and relationships and your ability to know what's going on, everything. So it widens out very quickly in terms of a spectacular view of life. And it's just that simple. So of the triangulation, it's still about me because it's an enhanced quality that I now have. But awareness comes in, and you say, oh, wow, this is really amazing. You see the value, even in a constricted form, which is harbored by myself, within myself, you see the value of awareness. And so here, therein comes um, uh, mindfulness of today, the lay mindfulness. <clears throat> People wake up to the fact that awareness has something to add to their life, and they apply it to you know, stress reduction or anxieties or everything. It's become a universal, applicable form. uh, And it's valued. And at some point, it may actually move into a further and more deepened uh, place in the hearts of those who apply it. But for us, this sense of self-empowerment is so... um, we're so focused on ourselves and we're so focused on what we want out of our meditation early on that we really go after meditation in, a, uh, in a, an improvement sort of sense. It, this, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. Please do not hear any judgment in this because there is none. We all go through this and some of us remain within this phase one quality. And I, as I have mentioned many times, Staying within yourself means you move at your own beckoning. You move when you feel ripe and ready to move, not when somebody in a Dharma talk says there are other phases to go in. You should 
There's no should in this. We move evolutionarily out of a self-imposed container where everything is to my benefit. And so we, we, but everything is to my benefit. I mean, I now, because I have the ability to attend, I start attending to the mind. And I see how, how much I've, weight I've given the mind, much more than it deserves. And that if I look around in there, these things, these are processes that are happening free of my control. I don't really have that much control. I, I still have control over my thoughts. Some, sometimes I can think deliberately, but I see spurious, spurious thoughts coming up where I don't have any control over. And I think, okay, I, you know, I can improve. I can change my attitudes. I can change my thinking patterns. I can make adjustments. It's like knobs that are now in your control. And you start spinning them, you know, and I don't know what knobs you spin, but uh, basically there are self-improvement knobs that most of us use. And so we're still in this phase one component, essential because it lays the foundation for this triangulated group to get to know the relativity of this group. It's these, these three things, subject, object, awareness, as I mentioned, define our entire practice, is our, the whole of the Dharma. <clears throat> and to start seeing the relativity of what, sh- what each of those holds with the other and how they modify uh, one. And the questions I ask about one, the interests I show in one, will change the whole nature of the Dharma in us. Uh, but you can stay in the self-improvement phase for your entire time, for your entire time, uh, and be a very good neighbor. But it, the journey then won't really move you much further down the spiritual path. And to do that, well, before I get there, it's a little bit like learning a, lang- a new language, your sec- a second language. Europeans are really good at this. We're terrible at second languages. So when we learn it, we're usually adults. uh, And we want it purposefully. We want to take a visit to Mexico and be able to ask where the bathroom is and how much this costs. So we learn a language for its functionality. We learn a language to get around and do the things we want to. And we're not interested in learning, learning the nuances or even close to fluency. Now, if we want to go live in Mexico, that may be a different incentive to learn the deeper and more subtle aspects of the language. So, in comparison to what I'm saying now about mindfulness, there's a moment in which learning a language, you just stop learning. Because what you went into the mindfulness for, or the language for, you've gotten, you've, you've satisfied. And then, and you meet people who have been in this country for years and years and years, and they, their English is broken, and they, you can't really understand them very much, but that's where they've decided to stop in their learning. And so, too, you can meet people who are years and years into their meditation, and they've stopped just within that one, that one uh, phase of practice. And it's obvious as you see that. Again, it's not a judgment. You just see it. You feel it. For those of us who would like to move into deeper and more subtle learning, you know, the world opens up here. 
But to move from the point of self, self-care, I'll call it self-care, into the next phase of practice, phase two, really requires a reshuffling of everything you've done. Uh, it's, it's very disruptive. The focus changes, incentives change, intentions change, practices change. Everything changes about your practice. When you now move into phase two, of, of the spiritual evolution. Because phase two partially is motivated by seeing the limitation of phase one. It's not, you're not whipping yourself there. You're not shooting yourself there. If you do that, they're still in phase one. It's still a self-improvement technique. I just have to do it because I think this is the right thing to do. Well, that's nonsense. That's why staying within yourself will have the legitimate and uh, necessary attraction to pull you into phase two. Uh, And so you find that in the heart. You find that by the yearning of the heart. We've talked about this. And so slowly you're willing to go there, even though it's disruptive to go to phase two. It's like the orientation changes for you. You're now under the gaze of your own observation and it's mixed up. It's, it's not under your control anymore. It feels very shaky. It's fearful or at least um, uncomfortable. And yet we do it. We do it because of the yearning, really, because you can't, okay, at some point you can't not do it. Okay, it's nice to have a teacher tell you that at some point you can't not do it because you'll reach that point and say, well, he told me you can't not do it. And, <laughs> and then you're willing to take it on. So what does phase two look like, you see? Now we're, now we're not on firm ground <laughs> because the triangulation of self object and awareness begin to be relative to one another. The sense of I is still very much the influencer of where this direction goes. We're still very much identified with a sense of self, but we realize that the sense, is, the sense of self and the objects we decide to uh, to try to focus upon are relative to one another. This is one of the most astonishing uh, component, uh, components of my early training was I really realized that, you know, when you're having a lovely, quiet sitting, everything is lovely and quiet. And when you're not, nothing is quiet. And it's not that I suddenly became someone else it's just that that conditioning shifted. A new person was born called the, the reactive Rodney. You may know that one. The, the reactive Rodney, <clears throat> as opposed to the quiet Rodney. And this everything, everything, all the object of the world and internally corresponded to that new Rodney. 
I never thought of it as being the same. Well, I did, but I quickly saw that that was not true. How is this not the same me? It's the same, different influences, different conditioning, diff- and the the whole of life appeared from that point of view. And so I begin to see the relativity of subject, me, and object, breath. And it really parallels a determination to make your life work because you realize why it doesn't. And a commitment to do it off the cushion because it's easy to bring the camaraderie here and that's not that's just one aspect of a variety of different Rodneys that need their exposure and their learning and so it expands you outward and makes it learning about what's going on essential which is where our questions come from, our Dharma questions. You know, they come from been, been doing the work, you know. We didn't start off knowing questions or having questions or even knowing how to ask questions. That, for most of us, was not given in the instructions. We had to learn our way into that. And yet it's so relevant to this phase two because if you just stay within phase one, you'll re the temptation is to re-solidify yourself within that observation, within that, and consider yourself at uh, at control center, you know, the master of control. And to consider yourself a person having a mind rather than the mind being a component part, I mean, the person being a component part of the mind. I said that last time, and we're going to do a guided meditation this time because it is such an essential point. You take yourself out of the mind. You're in phase one, whether you call it or not. You put yourself as an organism, part of the organism, and that's not the final phase, but it's a hell of a lot saner than the one that you were outside your mind put yourself in your mind as a mental process, the whole thing comes together in a way that now makes observation of self relatively simple because you're not objectifying the experience of, of, <clears throat> of, of the mind. You are in the mind. And the awareness now becomes central because it's not me looking at myself outside my mind, looking at it, it's being a part of the mind and that awareness, this phase two I'm talking about, that awareness has to come from something. Well, we objectify that awareness and call it the witness. But the witness, do we think the witness is outside the mind? (laughs) Well, you can, and most of us do, but it's not. When are you going to bring it into the totality of the system? You see? So you have to use your the third and 
uh, least understood component of that triangulation called awareness. <clears throat> and and, it, and you don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, I know what paying attention is. I know how to use it, but I always thought it was just part of the mind. In fact, scientists can't find, they can stimulate the brain and they can, you know, stimulate emotions and they can stimulate actions or sights or memories or they can stimulate all the things that are conditioned within the mind by just poking the right neuron. They cannot stimulate awareness. They cannot. There's no neuron that's the aware neuron. Now, what does it tell you? It's not a f- function of conditioning. And the Buddha said that. There's a beautiful sermon that is one of my favorites where some guy, some person comes to him and says, uh, what is the locus? He didn't say locus, but I can't remember the adjective. He says, what's the locus of the mind? He said, uh, Buddha said, the focus of the mind is awareness. That which holds the whole of the mind can see the whole of the mind is aware. No part of the mind, you can't, part of the mind that looks out, if it came from a part of the mind, then that part of the mind from which looked out couldn't look at. So part of you would be closed off to observation. But the whole of the mind has to come from a, something which is outside the mind. Anyway, that goes on and I won't finish it, but it's a really powerful direction for us. So now we're, we're thinking, we're trying to figure out how do I look at this whole thing because I realize I'm part of the whole thing not from a witness which claims an objective experience on the whole thing because that's outside the mind and then that witness would never be examined because I can't turn it on itself. But the fact that awareness isn't, I say, okay, okay, awareness. What is the witness? That's a dizzying question. Again, you're, you're now pulling the rug out from under you. To get to this point, the rug had to be pulled out from you to get from face. This is, the rug goes many times out from under your feet in this. And, and you just have to, because that's staying alive within the meditation, within your journey. It's staying alive. You want to be alive. You settle down into the comforts, the old home comforts of your sedated meditation. Well, it's old home comforts, but it's not as alive as it could be. And I want to infuse as much aliveness into you as possible because that's where you grow. That's where you move beyond conditioning. Any hesitation will entrap you. If you dwell on that hesitation, if you just stay stuck. Okay, so what is the witness? That's a question, okay? I mean, it's a question. (laughs) It's like, if I know that I am a mental 
experience in the mind. I know that. And I have been up until this point a witness of the mind, which has helped me a lot. I could see a lot of the mind, but it's always, there's a film over it called me, and my, and the thoughts that are coming from me are always filtering what I see. So it's not a clear picture, but it gives you some sense of what the mind is, and you can see that, anyway. So now the question, what is, I hope you feel this, Okay, what is the witness? What is that placeholder called me that is always holding the lamp of where I want, of what I want to see, of where I want to see? And now it springs open. The rug's pulled out because now awareness has been called forth. Up until this point, it's been the least recognized of the three components. I've looked at self, I've looked at object, I've used awareness to look at those things, but it has, it's been latent in its use. Now it's front and center in its use. And this begins to move us into phase three of our evolutionary journey. Because... As we move in this journey, we're moving outside ourself. There's no other way to say it. When you see yourself, <laughs> when seeing happens outside of you, where are you going to land? Where are you, where are you as a person going to claim to land? <laughs> the reason we knew thoughts were not mine is that we could see thoughts not from me. We could see them move. We could see them occurring, and me not directing their occurrence. You see, that's how we can say, "Well, I see that I th- I hear my thoughts, but I don't think them." That's how that happens. Is that you have an objective point of view where you, the thoughts are seen, but you're not thinking them. Well, now you are seen without a placeholder called you. You see that? That's real. I'm done. Okay, as I mentioned before, my lineage, my way through has been meditation. So if your way through is meditation, this is a crucial part of that evolutionary journey through the lineage of meditation, insight meditation. I mean, there are other traditions and they're all fine and some of them are extraordinary and most of them including Narayan and myself, have gone outside our traditions to, to fill out that whole piece. Because we, anyway, it doesn't matter, but you may or may not do that, and it's fine if you do, and it's fine if you don't. The point is that the whole of the Dharma can be understood from really investigating these three qualities, self, object, awareness. It's all there. Okay, so... Now, slowly, you're willing, slowly, because there can be a lot of shake-up here. (laughs) It can be really shaky. You're willing to let awareness see on its own. And first, how you do that is to allow awareness to see the witness. And that's called witnessing. Right? 
because you're no longer a witness is a noun. Witnessing is a verb. And so the verb sees the noun <laughs> and sees the noun exactly what we know it to be. But we, up until this day, may not have had the courage to bring up that request from awareness. You have to be really quiet. You know, if you're noisy on this thing, you're, that noise is going to determine awareness's availability. And you have to be very quiet too because <clears throat> the witness that has claimed its spot within your reference is noise. <laughs> so you're, you're, you, you can't whisper your way through the witness. <laughs> this requires stillness. It's the first time you've re- that may have been required of you. It sounded good when I say it or Narayan says it. It sounds good, but what, what, what does it really access? Well, this accesses everything. When you have a need for it, then, you, then you're quiet enough to let it be present. That's the key. If you're just doing it as something the teacher said, or it's just be nice to be still. I think I'll try being still. You're not going to be still. You're going to be quiet, but you're not going to be still. This, this is like a pendra- This is like that which from which noise arises. That which from which silence arises. That's still. And it's only that which is true awareness, pure awareness. Stillness and awareness are synonymous. So now, stillness sees. This is the most amazing thing. We think we have to be concentrated to see. We think the more subtle we see, we'll get to the place of such subtlety that we'll be able to see ourselves in completion. Listen, not going to happen. Doesn't happen? Why doesn't it happen? Because you, when you go into subtlety, it's, it's polarizing. You polarize yourself. You still have you going down and being quiet like this. <laughs> all to keep you in place. All to maintain. And I don't, okay, I say that in kind of a derogatory way, but it's not derogatory. I don't mean it in heart that way. It's just not going to work. And we think that, there, but you, we can use concentration to come to the end of this thing. It just shows subtlety. Subtlety with object and a subtle object and a subtle subject, but both in form. Form, object, form, subject will never reveal the formless. The Buddha said that I did a whole talk on, right? Conditioning does not lead to the end of conditioning. Subtlety does not lead to stillness. And you, but boy, oh boy, is it seductive because I can really see. I'm like microscopic, man. You come in this six six hundred power. Oh God, this is so cool. <laughs> it has that effect, and you think you're going somewhere. And there's arrogance, but you don't. You know, I know not to be arrogant, which is more arrogance. <laughs> you can't squash this thing. It's like you can't get rid of yourself. You try to, 
But it, okay, but that's the bond. That's the binding. <laughs> She's sober-faced. <laughs> there you go. So, See, that's stillness. You don't effort your way towards that. You realize there's nothing else. And that's where the elevator lands. And when you know it, People can talk about spirituality all day long. But when you're living it, it's a whole different experience. You see, mindfulness was never meant for self-improvement. Not in its essence. Its Its essence was never meant to give you hyper alertness. It was meant to show you what is. That's what it was meant to do. And we use it from so many different vantage points, so many different purposes, for so many different reasons, that the essence of it gets lost. And why would we go there anyway? To get lost? To lose ourselves? Nuh-uh. I'm hang, I don't, this rug, I'm hanging on, I'm nailing to the floor. I'm not getting pulled out from under this rug. <laughs> Please, God, don't make me go. <laughs> and then you go. And that's release. And now phase three takes over. Again, it has ripped us away from everything now. This is the final chaotic turning. Because our home is not a form. Not yet. This phase has phases within it as well. And it's important that the formless, the recognizing and abiding within the formless realm is a phase of this, is the first part of this phase. But does it show you the world differently? Can't be touched because there's no you. I searched for him, Mara said, but I couldn't find him. 
And so the richness of the, the landscape of what we have crossed, it touches us because all along the way we have seen the pain associated with that crossing and the pain associated with not crossing. And so you have pain both sides because people who are moving and just got the rug pulled out from them are as, can be just, I don't know what to do now. You know, they could take years away from their practice because it doesn't work for them anymore, not knowing where to move for their next footfall. And it can be an abandoned land. It can be despairing to be in that place. Because it's not working. What I had counted on is not working. Even the teachers I counted on are not telling me what, what about this or may not know themselves what the next step I am to take to be. And the people who stay in that will be much improved than they were when they began. Beautiful people, really. But they will still be individuals. Distance between themselves and the next. We says that the heart of human misery is the way we see. Remember, the way we see is because of what we believe ourselves to be. The perceptions we have only arise because of the configuration of myself as a self. I see distantly because I believe myself to be distant. From what? From the mind. I want me to be a person having a mental experience. If I join the mental experience, I lose my, I lose everything. I become a thought. What's a mental experience? There's nothing. I don't want to do that. I'll stay outside. Thank you very much. I'll proceed from there. <laughs> you, if you are outside you perceive everything is outside I'm speaking to your heart now getting in there this is heart surgery <laughs> encouraging it out encouraging that yearning that I know is intrinsic to it it's not forced it's not learned it's intrinsic because intrinsic to our essence is essence <laughs> and you know what i'm saying now is true because the essence hears itself follow that let that be the homing pigeon of your heart. Okay. Thank you for your attention. Can we just sit for a minute or two?
amazing, isn't it? Stillness is amazing. Where are you in stillness? Don't look around. Then you create yourself. The knowing of stillness is the knowing of your absence. So I have a hand. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.